Uh, good morning. So Pat wasn't able to be with us last week, and this week is traveling. And uh, we are continuing in Luke. I'm excited that we're going to be able to finish Luke uh, this spring, right? So we were in Samuel for a while. We took a break from that. Like, I'm just, I'm happy we're going to be through it. So um, we're going to skip a passage that Pat's going to come back to. You know, the Lord does his plans as he sees fit, right? Sometimes things are a little out of order. So we're in Luke 22, kind of in the middle of the chapter. And uh, that's where we're going to spend our time today. So as we do that, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just take a minute to calm our hearts and our minds. We ask that this word would be preached by the power of your spirit, that he would guide us into all truth this morning, and Father, that we would receive it with humility as he plants it in our hearts, because it is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So I like to share, you know, stories to help you guys get to know me. Right? We have only been here uh, just over a year, I think, and um, so just continue to help you to know uh, who the Barbers are, who Dan is. Um, we're sharing stories in our community group this spring, and so it just kind of all kind of work together. And one of those uh, significant things in my life is when I was in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade in our middle school, um, where I grew up, middle school was seventh, eighth, and ninth not six, seven, eight. And uh, so I started middle school and uh, I was bullied pretty intensely for the first couple of years. Um, it really didn't change until I switched schools in 10th grade. And um, it was a pretty shattering experience. You know, like sometimes people ask you, well, you know, if you, you could go over and do it over again, would you do it? And I'm like, no, like, that's terrible. I don't want to do that. Like, Maybe if I could change it, I don't know, right? Um, when, you're, when you're bullied, um, you know, someone is trying to put you down to make themselves feel better, right? To make them, to make their own sense of worth or power or prestige or whatever it is, to make themselves seem bigger, seem greater. Right? And I mentioned that story because we're here in Luke in a place where the disciples are arguing about who's the better disciple, right? Who's the better person? Um, and it's not, it's not so much that it's about uh, bullying or anything like that. That's just the example of my story. But even in a twist of irony, right, I came out of that experience with very few friends, not really knowing how to do relationships well. And, and what I kind of just defaulted to was I thought that people only really valued me based on what I had to offer them, which is a really oppressive way to live, right? Because you have to be the funniest. You have to be the smartest. You have to know something about everything. And if we were talking about, you know, fish, well, I caught a bigger fish, right? Um, 
and this constant one-upsmanship that I felt like I had to do in order to, to have worth to people around me. That's the irony of it. The irony was, even though I wasn't bullying other people, I still was seeking to find my sense of worth by putting other people down and exalting my own story, right? I couldn't rejoice with someone else when they shared something great. I had to share something greater. And that's where we're at, right? Because ultimately the question of who's the greatest in this story is a question that kind of relates to what we talked about three weeks ago, those five questions we always ask God, right? It's the question of, what am I really worth? What is a person really worth? And the question we talked about is a question from Paul Tripp, and the question was, does God really care about me? But that's a question we're always really asking ourselves. Do I really matter to God? Does God really value me? And that's the question that Jesus is going to give us an answer to this morning. So we're going to look at it three ways, kind of working through three points here. Um, Verses 24 and 25, uh, Jesus is going to talk about how the world measures our worth. How does the world assign worth to people? 26 and 27, he's going to say, but my example shows something different, right? Uh, That there is a different measure of worth in God's economy. And then verses 28 to 30 are going to give us really kind of a, uh, well, how did Jesus do that? Like, how did that actually work out in Jesus' life? Um, And so that's how we're going to go through it. Um, So let me give you a little context again, because we're jumping in. uh, We didn't get the benefit of kind of picking back up on Luke, and then we had Todd before that. So it's been a couple weeks. So we are in the last day of Jesus' life. Um, at the last meal that Jesus will eat, right? Uh, ironically, called the Last Supper, right? You guys have heard that before. So we're at the Last Supper. This is a meal which lasted for quite a long time. Um, so they've been there for hours. And um, man, I, I don't want to lose this, the sheer irony that this passage is even in Scripture. Okay, so think about what the Last Supper is. The Last Supper is the celebration of the Passover, right? Everybody remember the Passover? What happened at the Passover? God brought Israel out of Egypt, right? He brought Israel out of Egypt. So the most important festival to remember God's mighty acts, God's greatness demonstrated among the nations right? Where by signs and miracles and power, he delivered an enslaved people from the mightiest nation on earth. And they're celebrating that today. And instead of celebrating God's goodness and greatness and power and might and strength, the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. It's so emblematic of of where we are, right? We have all of these things, all of these gifts from the Lord. And, and instead of giving glory to God, we rob him of his and try and steal it for ourselves. So implement just the whole passage itself. If, if we picked up nothing else from it, that's, that's just like our daily life, right? So that's what's going on. 
um, where we're at. So let's talk about what Jesus says about how the world measures worth. Look in verse 25. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Uh, benefactors is probably not a term that you're familiar with. Maybe uh, you might be more familiar with the Latin term uh, patron. Uh, what Jesus is talking about is a system in the ancient world uh, called benefaction or patronage, depending on whether you're looking at the Greek or the Latin. And it's a system of reciprocity, meaning a, a benefactor or a patron would bless people with gifts, right? Maybe it was building uh, a building in the city. Maybe it was forgiving a debt. Maybe it was hosting a banquet, right? Uh, maybe it was getting someone out of prison or providing representation for someone. Whatever it was, a benefactor bestowed gifts out of his largesse, bestowed gifts upon the people, and in turn, you would give him honor and glory and status, right? The, the big classic example of this is Caesar Augustus. The Caesar was the benefactor, right? The patron of Rome, and everyone else was to pay homage to him, to exalt him, right? And, and that's how that relationship worked. Now, we don't have a formal system of how that works today, right? We don't do that, but, but informally, we do it quite a bit, right? We, we talk about this when it comes to celebrity and to people in positions of power, right? And we pay more attention to things that they say versus something somebody else might say, right? Who doesn't have name recognition or something like that? You can think about how influence shapes how we respond to those people, right? That's kind of the way uh, that Jesus starts talking about how, this, how the system of greatness works in the world. We ascribe greatness based on what people do, right? Based on how much they contribute. So, you know, someone who has quite a bit of money and gives a lot of bit of money, oh, he must be really, really great, right? That's how we measure it. We measure it based on all these external factors. And we don't do that measuring. We don't, you know, we're constantly making these comparisons. Not, and the example here is a little bit foreign to us, right? Because we're not living in that system. It would have been really apparent. What are some ways that we do this today? We do it whenever we're making comparisons with one another and trying to figure out um, trying to figure out why we're better than that other person for one reason or another. So let's take a couple examples. Um, think about a time when you, when someone else took credit for something you did, right? And you got angry. The classic example for people of my age bracket um, is... Uh, George in Seinfeld and the Big Salad, right? Goes and he buys a Big Salad for Elaine. George's girlfriend gives Elaine, gives, Elaine, gives, uh, gives Elaine the salad, right? And George is like, I paid for that salad and you didn't even mention that I bought it. 
how dare you, right? Like, he wants the credit. You got to have the credit. George, is, this is classic George, if you've never seen him. George is always paranoid that he doesn't get credit, right? And maybe it's not, maybe it was credit at work, maybe it was credit in the school, right? In seminary, we had um, oral finals our first year in one of our first classes, and they were group oral finals. So three people, and each person had to answer one question, and you couldn't help the other person with the question. And man, the outcry, right? How dare you judge me on the basis of somebody else's question, right? That's completely unfair, right? And it was always unfair down, right? It's never unfair up, <laughs> right? Yeah, you got an A because this guy answered the question really well, right? It's always the other way. That's what we do. Um, maybe it's uh, with your friendships, right? Where you say, um, you find out that you know, one, of your, one of your close friends asked another friend about a problem and they didn't come to you. You think, man, why didn't they come to me? They really should have come to me. I mean, I could have really helped them. Instead of really being concerned about the problem, we're concerned about the fact they didn't come to us with the problem, right? One that I've been going through in, in my life, and April and I have been talking about this, is it kind of came especially up over the, uh, the pandemic, um, since we both work full time, is what do we do when, when there's scheduling conflicts? And what I noticed was that whenever we have a scheduling conflict, my assumption was that she would change her schedule and I would never change mine. And I started to ask myself the question, why do I think that? And in part, it's just because my, my job makes more money than her job does, but you could argue that her being a teacher has far more intrinsic value than what I do, right? She's trying to teach people math who don't wanna learn math, right? Like, that's a big deal. Right? We're always making these comparisons. I'm spending a lot of time there just trying to see we are constantly, even though this example in, in the text is something that's a little bit foreign to us, we're constantly making comparisons with each other to try and vie and, and jockey for position and power and greatness. And ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a deeper sense of worth about ourselves, right? Because that's the way the world measures it. The world tells you, you are worth based on what you contribute. Okay, but Jesus says it's not supposed to be that way for you. So look down in verse uh, 26 and 27. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, if you want to look at the way greatness is really measured, you should look at the person who's the youngest among you, right? You can even take a look around here. We've got some pretty young people here. What are they doing? They're just here. They're not worried about what you have or what I don't have about how funny you are or how funny you're not or whatever. They're just here. They're just happy. They're just existing. They're just being part of it. They're just enjoying. They're just walking through life the way that they should, not knowing any better. 
But Jesus kind of makes that point a little bit more clear when he says, but I'm among you as the one who serves. And it's a bit of a double entendre in, in the passage. Um, and this is sometimes one of the things that can be hard about the Gospels, right? Not all of the Gospels have the same things, right? They're not all the same letters. So the four letters each have different stories that aren't necessarily included in the others, right? And um, one of those stories is the washing of the disciples' feet, which is in John 13. And so before this, so maybe an hour before this, maybe a couple hours before this, Jesus himself was sitting at the table with them. And, and John 13 tells us that he got up and took a towel around his waist, put his garments aside, and he washed the disciples' feet. And he and Peter actually get in an argument about it. So Jesus, in a demonstration, when he says, I am among you as the one who serves, the disciples are actually thinking about, Jesus literally just did this right in front of us. He just showed us what it meant, what he means by, I am among you as the one who serves. He got up from his position of, where, you know, of honor, right, being at the table, and he took the role of a servant Right? And he washed the disciples' feet. They're dirty, disgusting, disformed, dusty, sweaty, smelly, stinky feet. And he did it specifically to give them an example to follow. Now, it's clear that they don't get it because they're having this argument. Right? But he did it that way specifically to teach them something. And that's where we come to how we put those two things together. It's, he's trying to show them that the measure of your worth isn't based on what the world says it is. Okay? And so he gives them this answer, this kind of explanation in 28 to 30. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And when I read that the first time, I was kind of like, what? This is one of those things where you're like, Jesus, are you sure you wanted to say that? Like, I, I, I don't understand, right? You're telling Peter, he doesn't understand, you know, not just Peter, right? All the disciples, but you're telling them, I always laugh because I always think it's Peter, right? Because Peter's the one who's always kind of a little bit mouthy. Right. So you know, it's like, you know, anyway. Um, so he's telling them, you guys are thinking about greatness all wrong. And then he goes on to tell them that they're going to sit on thrones judging other people. And you're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Are you just feeding their egos? What is going on here? Um, so my dad worked for Intel in the 70s um, out in San Jose, right? And um, Intel uh, had their initial public offering, which is when they start selling stock, for those of you who don't know. Uh, their initial public offering, they sold stock, and a, and a share of stock cost $23.50 when they started. And my dad, I'm sure, like everybody else, went through the discussion, right, with his family, like, hey, should we 
Should we buy some stocks? Should we not buy some stock? I mean, $23 back in the 70s, right, was, was quite a bit of money out of your paycheck compared to what we have now. I don't know exactly what it would be in equivalent to today. Um, today, that one share of stock would be worth $66,000. And you think it would have changed my dad's decision to buy stock or not in the 70s if he would have known my dad's retired right now south carolina if he would have known that a single share would have been worth sixty-six thousand dollars today do you think that would have changed something think maybe he would have like bought some like a lot right knowing what's happening at the end can change what you do today. So I'm gonna give you a principle. Uh, it's something that's been really formative in my life. Uh, if we ever go through like the book of Revelation, I'll talk about it. Um, but because he's talking about something that's coming in the future, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very central to what we're talking about here, why Jesus says this. And it's these five words, future promise shapes present practice. Okay, say it with me. Future promise shapes present practice, okay? Jesus is trying to tell them, you don't have to go out there and get stuff from the world. I've already given you an inheritance in the kingdom. You don't have to go out and get it. You see, we do all these comparisons. We do all these things. We put other people down to raise ourselves up because we think that there is something to be gained by doing it or something to be lost if we don't. We think it's going to change something about us and we've got to go out and we've got to grab it, otherwise we might miss it. But when you've been given the whole world through Jesus, what else is left to get? What can you possibly lose? It's not even based on what you did in the first place. If it's true that the meek will inherit the earth, then it frees us from this concept that the world has that we have to go out and do all these things to find our worth. We can say, we find worth in what Jesus has done, in the finished work of Jesus, and in being co-inheritors with him of everything. And when we understand that, we become like the youngest of these who has nothing to lose or nothing to gain because we know everything is being provided for. Everything works itself out. I am now free to give and to serve and to do everything out of abundance. And the crazy thing is, is this is exactly how Jesus did it. And in John 13, um, John gives us insight into Jesus' mind. And the disciples don't know this, but just, just to, to just so you know, I'm not pulling this out of the text, right? John 13, verse 3. This is what John writes about why Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, took off his outer garments, and put on a towel because Jesus 
was able to minister out of the abundance he already had. You and I already have worth through Jesus, and that's the way that we come about and, and understand this in God's economy. I've talked, uh, I, I don't know, I can't remember how many sermons I've done here now at this point, but I, I talk about C.S. Lewis, you know, a fair bit. I love C.S. Lewis. One of the more influential people in my life. This book, uh, I've shared little tidbits with you from there. This is called Made for Heaven. Uh, it's a collection of three essays uh, from C.S. Lewis from various works. It's 95 pages, and these are quarter pages, right? They're not even half pages. You can read this in the afternoon. Um, outside of Scripture, probably one of the most influential things in my life. So it's like four bucks, right? I would encourage everyone to get it. I want to read a, a section to you about this as we kind of wrap all this stuff together. Lewis says, I am considering not how, but why he makes each soul unique. If he had no use for all these differences, I do not see why he should have created more souls than one. Be sure that the ins and outs of your individuality are no mystery to him, and one day they will be no mystery to you as well. The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you had never seen a key. And the key itself, strange, if you had never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape because it is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance. It is not humanity in the abstract that is to be saved, but you, you the individual, John Stubbs or Janet Smith, blessed and fortunate creature, your eyes shall behold him your eyes and not another's all that you are sins apart is destined if you will let god have his good way to utter satisfaction your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it stitch by stitch like a glove is made for a hand Brothers and sisters, if you want to know what a person is worth, think about the second person of the Trinity who laid aside his eternal glory to come and be born in these frail bodies to live a life of destitution, poverty, danger, to be mocked, and tortured to be crucified with criminals unjustly only to give you a share of that inheritance forever to live together with him forever so that you could have it that's how much you're worth as his creation that he would come and do that for us and as we realize that as we lean into that truth and we start to appropriate it more and more in our hearts it frees us up from having to go out and compete and to say who's more worthy, who's greater, who's the best. And we're simply just able to minister to each other, to honor each other's worth out of the abundance of what we've already been given. And when we do that, we truly understand 
the words of Jesus in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we, oh, we do pray that you would teach us what it means that you have given us life abundantly. Pray that you would reveal to us those ways, even those subtle ways, in which we are not finding our worth, in the work of Christ, not because we are worthy in and of ourselves, far from it. Our sin has condemned us to death. But you have made us in your image. You have created us to worship you. Father, we pray that we would find all of our greatness in you. We pray, Father, the words of John the Baptist that you would increase and we would decrease. For your glory and the good of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.